Welcome to episode 201 this week on the podcast, talking with the author of Creativity, The Key to a Remarkable Life. A quick note for our listeners that this episode does have some triggering topics in it, including sexual assault and infectious disease. So we want you to be aware of that before we jump into this really great episode. Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies to make a difference in the social impact world. My name is Carisha Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers here at Whole Whale and your host for today's show. Thanks for listening. Today on the pod, we have Fredos Karas, author of Creativity, The Key to a Remarkable Life. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming on the pod. Uh, so we can jump right in. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book and its relation to nonprofits? Sure. My book is all about using creativity. So let me start with what creativity is, and then I'll come to the relationship with nonprofits, creativity is the ability to think differently by a mental process of original thoughts that leads to the creation of new ideas. So let's apply that to the nonprofit world. First of all, I think that if there is any silver lining in 2020 in what has happened to us on a global basis because of COVID-19, it is simply this, that we have all had to rethink everything. We've had to rethink how we work. We had to rethink how uh, we interact with our children because perhaps they're more at home than they used to be and so on. If you're a nonprofit organization, depends on which side of which you're in. If you're, for example, in health, you might have seen an increase in your funding. But for the most part, I think nonprofits have probably seen a decrease in their funding. So the silver lining that I see out of all this is that we have had to apply our creative thinking in every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's being forced on us. The second aspect of, uh, of COVID-19 that I actually like is the fact that we have been reminded once again that we are, after all, one human family. Mm. You know, perhaps we have to go all the way back to World War II to think of what has happened in the world, in history, that reminds us that we're all interconnected and that what happens in one part of the world impacts us on another part of the world. And so mm. what started in China has impacted us because, after all, we're human beings on the same planet. And that, uh, that recognition that we're not alone, that we're all in this together, living on a very fragile planet, spinning in space, is, I think, one of the good things that have come out of uh, COVID-19. The impact of my book uh, and, and the relationship between the book and, and nonprofits is, is very direct. I draw my own history from my early socialization in Calcutta in India. When I was eight years old, I met Mother Teresa many times because my mother was the head. She was a British trained lawyer, but she was the head of a national non-governmental organization in India. 
And uh, that early upbringing for me is what has influenced my life throughout my life all the way to what I do today. I actually also headed a national organization, NGO in Canada for five years called the United Nations Association in Canada, which is a national NGO with chapters across Canada that uh, deals with issues uh, around the UN and builds Canadian support for uh, the United Nations. So I've, I've grown up in an NGO environment and I still work with NGOs all around the world in my work that I'm currently doing. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for that one definition, um, which I think a lot of people have been experiencing. I do find that COVID has really brought out the creativity in a lot of us and really a lot of the minute details that we didn't really think about before, um, thinking about how to navigate Zoom, how to work remotely, all of these things are really um, kind of changing the way that we operate, um, whether by force or by voluntary circumstance. Um, I know that you have some experience in kind of changing public opinion on issues. Could you tell us a little bit more about the creativity that's needed to do such a, a big feat um, and kind of the challenges in doing that as well? Well, creativity is absolutely essential. That's, uh, that's what I've immersed myself in over the last 25 years. So mm -hmm. I've worked on a very large number of issues, over 50 issues uh, of global and national importance. Uh, so I've been using animation as my main avenue of creating social change. So, so far I've uh, created animations, the, over 4,000 animations that currently exist in over 400 language versions and have been used in 198 countries and been seen by well over a billion people over the last 25 years. They are on issues like diseases prevention, including COVID-19 now, uh, on violence reduction, on human rights, on children's rights and so on, on a very large number of uh, very important social issues. So how do you use creativity? You use creativity to bring your audience to the point that you want to make and for them to change their behavior. I don't believe that you can impose behavior change on a person. I can't tell you what to do. You have to accept the messaging and you have to internally come to your own conclusion that you want to change your behavior. So there are two ways to do that. One is to directly change a person's behavior for example, I co-created a famous series on HIV AIDS called The Three Amigos, which is three funny animated condoms that went around the world. And uh, that was directly talking to the viewers saying, you know, wear a condom, stop the spread of AIDS. But on the other hand, I more recently created a uh, animation that was used extensively in the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. And that's where we created it for to deal with the stigma that women fail after they have been raped in the Congo. Mm. And so the long-term impacts of that. But I thought I would uh, target men with this video. I was completely wrong. We Women have carried it. Women have watched it. So we first did it in multiple languages for the Congo. Then women started taking it to various uh, places like uh, Uganda and uh, Zambia. Mm -hmm and other surrounding countries. And then some women shot it over to the Boko Haram region of Northeast Nigeria. 
And then they uh, started taking it into the schools and getting young women to talk about rapes and their experiences in the school system in Northeast Nigeria. So the video was a catalyst. Uh, so the creativity was in creating a video that sparked a discussion. It's not directly trying to change anybody's behavior. It is simply to get a discussion going. It's called a catalyst. I call it a catalyst video to get mm -hmm. a discussion going. And that discussion is what changes behave people's behavior. It's not the video directly. So sometimes I speak directly to the viewer with creativity and sometimes indirectly by creating a discussion or pressure, a peer pressure that then changes a person's behavior. And so that, that really is uh, what I've been doing for the last 25 years, is using creativity on these uh, very important uh, social issues around the world. Yeah, thank you for sharing that example. And I think that's kind of a lot of the ways and tactics that some organizations try to spread awareness around changing public opinion, right? Either through videos like you mentioned, or maybe public speakers or influential people from the world, but really just trying to start a conversation, right? About what exactly is happening, what this means, how it affects people, um, and really showing the impact of this problem and why it needs to be solved. Um, so thank you again for sharing that example. That's, you're welcome. It doesn't always work, by the way. It's very difficult to do. It's yeah. very difficult to do, yeah. So yeah, that's gonna be my next question. How do no. you kind of jump that hurdle of going from maybe this one video that's floating on the internet anywhere to creating a more widespread conversation? Well, let me start with what doesn't work uh, mm -hmm. and how uh, people sometimes fail to change uh, public opinion. Yeah. And I'll give you an example of uh, domestic violence. If you think of domestic violence, many of the uh, campaigns put out by NGOs and by governments show the image of a battered woman and basically say, don't do this. You know, uh, to me, that does nothing more than publicize uh, domestic violence. Mm. It doesn't actually address the person whose behavior you want to change. And that's not the woman, that's the person who's beating her up. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that all we do with these kinds of imagery is uh, create publicity for domestic violence, and we don't actually change people's behavior. So I created uh, another campaign called the No Excuses Campaign on domestic and sexual violence that now exists in 39 languages, and basically using humor, even making rape funny, using humor to bring the audience to the main point that I want to make, which is only made at the end of the video. Mm. And, and it is designed to be repetitively viewed. It is designed to spark a discussion. It is designed to be funny. It is designed to be memorable. And mm -hmm. it, it is designed so that it goes around the various barriers that we have as human beings. So my biggest problem in creating these kinds of large global campaigns is that we all carry in us differences. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is I often say that I have an audience of one person, just one person, because I think that we're all unique. Uh, I think that we have all in our own heads, in our own minds, a different way of assimilating information and of receiving and interpreting communications 
and in making communications than anybody else. We are as different as our fingerprints are as we in communication. So that the, the factors that we have in our brains, the, the social, economic, political, religious, ethnic, uh, nationalistic, uh, political opinions, uh, all these kinds of stereotypes, all these kinds of things that we carry around in ourselves make us very unique individuals. And I don't think there are two people on this planet who are alike. Therefore, I do think that we need to treat our audience as an audience of one person. And, and you know, in the old days, uh, marketers used to group a lot of people together. So, uh, you know, if they saw you, they would think, okay, you know, affluent, uh, urbanite, living in New Jersey, like <laughs> y yellow shirts, you know, and, and, and would, uh, would, you know, creating marketing happen in that way. Now, every time you click, to buy a yellow shirt or look at a yellow shirt uh, or anything else, uh, they, they know that. They're creating huge data to make an individual profile of you. And that's become very big business. And, but that actually coincides with my feeling about uh, creating mass communications and how you create social impact is never, never, never to group people together and to treat everybody as an individual and that's what I've been doing, even though my work has been seen by probably over 2 billion people, not just 1 billion, but probably by 2 billion people. Uh, I still treat uh, every approach as if I have an audience of one person. Yeah. I can get around the barriers that separate us as human beings, the cultural barriers, the religious barriers, the linguistic barriers, the nationality barriers, the ethnic uh, barriers, and so on. So yeah, that's really interesting. I, as one of the advertising whalers, I am definitely in the business of grouping people together to create a target audience. So definitely guilty there. But I think it's interesting that you mentioned the idea of a one person audience, right? Because I think that's a lot of what we try to do in marketing and advertising, creating these very niche audience to try to make our messaging as personal as possible. Um, but I'm interested in kind of maybe tipping the scale, going too deep into maybe that audience of one. How do you kind of skirt the line there? And one, wanting to be personalized to a specific person or maybe hand group, handful of people, but while also wanting it to be able to spark conversation amongst everybody, you know? I'm wondering yeah, about the that's yeah, you you hit on exactly the the biggest problem I had in in this, uh, and that is, on the one hand, recognizing that we're all individuals, and the other hand, trying to make massive changes on a global scale, with hundreds of millions of people watching some of the programs, and that, but but I think it comes it comes at it from exactly that point. Now let's take let's go back to the three amigos, the uh, animated condoms as an example. Before I created that series, there were uh, different uh, campaigns created by NGOs uh, using real condoms in the most case that were thrown off the air because people got uh, offended by them. Uh, and here we have, you know, animation has a great advantage. It's not real. You have what is called a suspension of your disbelief system. When you watch animation, you know what you're seeing is not real. And my particular condoms had uh, faces and arms and they talked 
and and so uh, you were more accepting, and they were funny. They you were more accepting of the messaging. Secondly, I can get around all these barriers because animation can be in any language and have any nationality. In the No Excuses campaign, I give you an example of. I use blue characters. Why blue people? Because there are no real blue people. So if I use a black person or a white person or any other ethnicity, a Japanese looking person would not work in South Africa, for example, terribly well. So, you know, to get around these barriers, animation gets around these uh, creatively. You can get around these barriers using animation because you can create something that is universal. So uh, I have used animation very extensively and very successfully to try and get around these, uh, these individual barriers that we have as, uh, that we all carry in us, you know, uh, that, that nobody doesn't have. And the mixture of what we have in our own brains is so different than anybody else's. I might be a very religious person, for example, and so I might have a certain way of looking at things because of what I believe are the values given to me by my religion. On the other hand, somebody else might be totally non-religious, but have a strong nationalistic feeling about it. Uh, so they would see, you know, something from a very nationalistic perspective. Somebody might have a stereotype against women. So uh, they have my camera strong stereotype against women. So I have to get around that barrier, even though I might have a female uh, uh, character talking, I have to get around that barrier because they would see that, uh, that they would receive that message through the prism of their uh, stereotype of women. So these are the kinds of things I spend a great deal of time thinking about yeah, I think that's a really great emphasis, really thinking about the people who are going to see it, not necessarily maybe your target audience, but thinking about those who are going to see this PSA or this messaging, thinking about the ways that they think, how they identify. Um, I think that's a really good point that I think sometimes, especially in marketing or advertising, we don't always think about, right? We try to templatize things as much as possible, make things as easy to produce as possible. Um, but sometimes that just doesn't work all the time, right? Sometimes the messaging just doesn't resonate. And maybe that's why some uh, PSAs or creative uh, messaging doesn't always work. Absolutely. One of the best examples of that in the world, I think, is uh, the marijuana uh, campaigns in the U.S. You know, the U.S. Congress authorized over a billion dollars to be spent on marijuana messaging and communications uh, over a period of 10 years, and marijuana use went up in those 10 years. Uh, so uh, it doesn't always work. You can spend a huge amount of money I, I, I give you another example. I went to an international conference on malaria prevention because I had done a campaign uh, called Mustn't Bite featuring two funny Anopheles mosquitoes and only female mosquitoes uh, can carry uh, malaria and infect you with malaria. And, uh, and they were not creating visual media even for Africa. And I said to them, well, you know, uh, people aren't always literate. And they said, okay, well, you know, we created this poster and we have on the, on this, uh, you know, some images. So at lunchtime, I went out and I bought some tape 
And I taped up every single word on that poster. And I said, now, okay, tell me what it says. If you can't understand it, tell me what it says with these images. It, it, it absolutely is useless. Uh, and they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars doing things like this, like creating advertisements in national newspapers that, you know, very small elite percentage of the country can possibly read. In the case of Ebola prevention, for example, which I worked on extensively about four or five years ago in West Africa, when there was a serious outbreak in three countries of Ebola, again, the international community did exactly what they normally do, create posters, pamphlets, and so on. And I said, well, it was, this is, you know, in, the, in some of these villages, the literacy rate is maybe 20%. Uh, and we can't go around preaching to people using posters and pamphlets and saying, read this. And the communications on COVID-19 has exemplified that. I mean, the amount of misinformation and the plethora of information that we've had on COVID-19, you know, every, in, every country has treated it differently. Every state in the US has treated it, and, and province in Canada has treated it differently. There's been no international leadership on this. There has been uh, no emphasis on education. You know how we stopped Ebola uh, four years ago in West Africa? It wasn't in any hospital. It was with education. It was with telling people how not to get uh, infected with Ebola, uh, and that's what stopped it. And, you know, the same people who said millions and millions of people are going to die of uh, COVID-19, you know, hundreds of millions of people are going to die, the same forecasts were made in Ebola uh, in West Africa. And I remember a New York Times headline that said uh, that 1.4 million people are going to die of Ebola in the next four months. Well, guess what? We stopped Ebola with 11,000 deaths, 11,000, not millions, 11,000 deaths. That is because of education. That is because we got the population involved. That is because we got the population understanding how Ebola is transmitted, how not to get infected, and what to do if you are infected. And that's what made the difference in how we stopped it. There has not been that emphasis on public education that I've seen in the COVID-19 crisis. And if we had started with that in perhaps December of last year or, or January of this year, and we had just pounded that in, into everybody's uh, uh, head, uh, masks are a good example. I, you know, many countries don't use masks. Some countries insist on using masks. Some states insist on using masks. Some people, a doctor said use masks. Other people's uh, doctors uh, said, don't use masks. Nobody knew for a long time whether masks are necessary or not necessary. Uh, it, you know, it, it was completely confusing. And I think that, I think that that's, uh, these kinds of messaging are what drives pandemics. They actually propel pandemics forward. If we don't have co coordinated and simplified messaging that goes out to the world. Yeah, I think that's like the prime example of how important it is that your messaging is clear 
direct and also accessible, right? I love that you touched on the idea of literacy and using words, as, especially as opposed to maybe graphics or images that could easily tell the same message without necessarily needing to know a specific language or being able to read those words. And I think even with COVID-19, it's very similar, right? A lot of the messaging that we have is revolved around words. Sometimes you see images of washing hands or wearing a mask, but a lot of the very vital and important information that everybody needs to help stop the spread is not really being relayed as efficiently as it should be. No, it isn't at all. Uh, and, and I've worked on COVID-19 prevention and infection just recently in multiple languages uh, earlier this year. I am now dealing in the Middle East with the Red Cross on getting messages out uh, on the stigma felt by health workers who deal with COVID-19, who are in the front lines of, uh, of uh, dealing with patients in COVID-19. They're feeling a lot of discrimination and stigma outside of the work environment. And so we're, we're launching uh, international campaigns using my work on that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I do think that creativity needs to be applied. Uh, and I think that, and that's why I wrote the book and how you can make your mind, how you can open up your mind to creative thinking and how you can change the world. Everything has to be rethought now in 2020, everything. Let me give an example. I mean, uh, I know that most of your audience are NGOs. Well, if you're an NGO dealing with poverty, let's say, you suddenly have to rethink about how you're going to get money in. Uh, many churches, for example, that used to rely on people coming in to the church and, and giving money, uh, let's say every Sunday, suddenly have to rethink about how they're going to survive uh, in a church. Um, I haven't carried money personally since March. Uh, the government here in Canada discourages us from using cash we're all now using our debit cards, our credit cards to pay for everything. So every time I walk past somebody, you know, a poor person who asks for money, I, I have to tell him quite honestly, I'm sorry, but I literally have no cash. Uh, so if you look at the world from that person's perspective, uh, or an NGO dealing with poverty or homelessness uh, on the street level, they're facing a massive crisis because all of a sudden nobody's giving any cash out uh, to anybody. Uh, so I, I do think that they will have to rethink. And I think that organizations, NGOs that don't have an online presence already had better get one pretty soon because if we don't have an online presence and a serious online presence, including a capacity to receive donations and a capacity to clearly communicate your mission and the capacity to reach out to not just your normal donors, but perhaps to potential new donors, you're going to go out of business pretty soon. You're going to disappear pretty soon. The world has changed. Uh, you know, if you, it is not going to go back after 2020 to what it was before. Definitely. And I think we are seeing some creativity, right? Even from the 
organizational level to the individual level. A lot of people that I know are artists, especially performing artists where they can't maybe go audition for uh, the new play or go to dance classes or um, even kind of the odd jobs that they were taking on to sustain themselves. And what they've started doing is they started crowdfunding on social media, providing services online like dance classes or singing lessons or any of these things to try and um, kind of evolve with 2020 in the way that we're really moving online. And like you said, we're not carrying cash as much as we used to. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, in fact, I hope that they see going online as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Sorry. Because in fact, you, if you're successful, you have the ability to vastly increase your audience. Mm -hmm. So if you're uh, an actor, uh, as you mentioned, you're limited to the number of people that can come to your theater uh, mm -hmm. before. Now, the whole world can watch you uh, online. Literally, the whole world can watch you online. So the audience that you, potential audience, has suddenly expanded hugely. Now, of course, you're competing with everybody else that's also out there. Uh, and you have to make sure that you have social marketing and you get people to whatever it is that you're doing. Um, but having said that, I think that the potential is huge. I think in work, I think a lot of places are going to change. I think that there are a lot of companies and governments and NGOs that are not going to require their people to come back to work physically in an office. Mm -hmm. I think that many uh, people will work from their homes uh, forever. I mean, it's not going to change. And perhaps there'll be some hybrid models in some cases where you mm -hmm. come into work for some days out of the week or whatever, it's going to be a hybrid model. But essentially, uh, that's, uh, that's the big change that, uh, you know, you don't have to physically go. So that has all kinds of ramifications. Ramifications on how people interact with each other. Ramifications on how much driving we do, how much pollution we put into the air. Uh, ramifications on rents around the world. Perhaps there'll be office buildings that are going to be permanently empty. Uh, I mean, companies and NGOs' expenses might go down, which is a good thing. So, uh, you know, there are lots of, uh, lots of different ramifications. And one of them, by the way, is that housing is becoming more expensive, especially in North America. Mm. Rents are going down, but because everybody wants to work out of their house or has to work out of their house, they suddenly need a new office space in yep. the house and so this upward pressure to get a bigger or better place than you than you already have definitely i think throughout this entire conversation we've touched on the different ways that nonprofits can evolve um, into this changing narrative that we've had, especially in terms of thinking creatively about their messaging. Do you have any tips or steps that any nonprofit could take tomorrow or next week or within this month that uh, they can use to add a little bit more creativity to their messaging or even their overall operations? Well, <clears throat> start by thinking that everybody is a creative person. You know, uh, I've met a lot of people, and even in the NGO field, that feel that creativity just involves a certain talent, for example, acting or painting or writing. It isn't. It's not the same as artistry. And every person is a creative human being. And if you don't believe me, just think back to your childhood. 
you know, you were a creative person when you were a child. You use your imagination, you use your intuition, you, you know, actively, you did whatever. So uh, I think that we all create people. The amount, the openness that we have to creative thinking varies and we need to expand our thinking. And that's why I wrote the book. We need to expand our creative thinking so that we have different approaches to solutions. We have different ways of coming at problems. We have different ways of finding out what our problems are. And we have different ways of making sure that once we find the problems, we have a solution. So uh, we all have a tendency, for example, when we have a problem of trying to find a single solution and then stopping. When we think we have the first solution, we have found a solution, we stop. We don't keep thinking about solutions. But in fact, it, it might be that you have another solution that's much better. Uh, you know, you just have stopped your thinking. So expand your creative thinking to come at different ways of approaching that problem and, and then get around the fact that you might have you know, to accept that the best solution is actually the first one you thought of and not the first one you thought of. You know, I have a funny example. Uh, nobody knows how the name 7-Up came about of the drink. And nobody knows. I'm hoping that whoever invented 7-Up, and there was an individual who, who invented 7-Up, but he never said how he came up with the name. I'm hoping it's because he tried one up, two up, three up, four up, five up, six up, and they didn't work that well. And the yeah. seventh one did. And, and you know, uh, that's, how, that's how he came up with it. So my, my mission through this book is to think like that guy who made seven up and, and assume that the first six didn't work uh, that well. Uh, and that's why I named it seven up. <laughs> I love that example. <laughs> Um, but thank you so much for dropping all of these gems. Um, I think it was a really great conversation, very timely, and hopefully um, any nonprofit employee that's listening can take any tips from this conversation to their organization today, tomorrow, who knows? Well, thank you. I hope they I hope they buy the book. You can uh, go on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of these platforms and buy the book, or you can go to my website. My company name is Talking Moose Media, and uh, but it's Moose Animal, not the dessert. And <laughs> uh, and you can uh, go to my website. If you buy the book through the website, you get a personally signed copy uh, from me. Awesome. Well, we're not finished yet. We do oh, still okay. have our rapid fire round, which is my favorite round. If you listen to our All podcast, right. go, no, for I rapid, go for the rapid fire round. <laughs> so we just have a list of 10 questions or so. Um, we give guests about 30 seconds to answer, but no pressure. Um, okay. Are you ready to begin? Uh -huh. Cool. Yep. What's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Zoom. Yeah. Uh, I used to use Skype. Uh, everybody around the world that I knew used Skype and we've all moved to Zoom. Uh, I hadn't heard of Zoom until this year, uh, in fact. So the answer is simple, Zoom. Yeah, there's the running joke that um, how did Skype break a 17-year lead <laughs> of video calling? Yeah, I have no idea, but we all used Skype before. I still have Skype on my computer, <laughs> but we use Zoom now. Definitely. Are there any tech issues you're battling with right now? 
I I am not because I actually have been always online. I mean, I don't have an office. I never did. Uh, I do all my work by myself. I don't even have an assistant. Uh, and I work uh, with people around, literally around the world. I could talk to people in half a dozen countries on any particular day. Uh, and so uh, I've always uh, been electronically savvy and, and all my productions are both created that way and distributed uh, that way. You, incidentally, you can go to my Vimeo channel, anybody can, and see my work and download it and use it for free. There's no charge. Uh, and it's there in about 360 language versions. So uh, over 80% of the world's population can go to my Vimeo channel and can find at least some of my work in their own language. Wow, yeah, that's amazing. I'll be sure to ask about that again. <laughs> What's coming in the next year that has you most excited? Oh, I think everything's changing. So what I'm most excited about is that we are going to have to apply creativity. We're going to have to create innovations. Innovations are not the same as creative thinking, by the way. Innovations are the result of creative thinking. Uh, it's, it's a tangible result uh, from creative thinking. And I think that we're going to see a lot more innovations uh, coming up in the next year. I think the the, the concepts of creative thinking and, and expanding your mind, it's a transformational way of thinking is going to become more and more and more important as we come out of 2020 and into the next year. Yeah. Can you talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now? Oh, I made many mistakes. I, I invested <laughs> in companies that went broke. <laughs> I, I did uh, made umpteen mistakes. You know, I, I think I underestimated sometimes the the kind of pushback uh, that that I got. You know, when you when you create change, you disrupt status quo. Mm. because, uh, and people have an investment in the status quo. So if I'm changing men's behavior in the Congo, for example, trying to do that on rape, it, some men are going to get angry and, and resist it and, and use all kinds of reasons why, uh, you know, it shouldn't be done. You know, who's this foreigner telling us whatever. I mean, I can think of all kinds of reasons. And that has been true over and over and over again. Uh, the most recent thing I actually worked on was a video called How to Interact with the Police in the United States. Mm. Uh, and, it, and it's, you know, very timely and it's a wonderful uh, video uh, that I was commissioned to create. I think, that, I think that if you're at the forefront of social change, you disrupt the status quo and you must be prepared for the fact that there are going to be people that are upset because you're changing the status quo. I've had a lot of praise, as you pointed out in your introduction, but I've also had death threats uh, against me. So, you know, you take, you, you have to understand that those kinds of things sometimes happen. And that, by the way, is sometimes a measure of your impact. Because if, if people sometimes don't get upset with what you're doing, you're not having an impact. Yeah, I've definitely heard the phrase, um, if you don't have any haters, then you're not taking a stand something on something. <laughs> That's true. Do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? Oh, I think NGOs will go out of business. <laughs> whether they, you know, they, they really, in the, in the new environment, if they don't adapt, 
if they don't uh, put on a creative thinking hat and uh, and really change the way they're doing it, doing business, they will go out of business. Uh, and and I'm worried about that. I'm worried about especially those organizations that deal with things that you know, for example, poverty. I think that COVID nineteen has put hundreds of millions of people back into poverty that have come out of poverty uh, on a global basis. And, uh, and the need for NGOs on those kinds of issues has actually gone up, not down. It's actually gone up. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, malaria prevention is an example uh, I often use. I'm very worried because we were making great strides in eradicating or at least controlling malaria uh, until all the resources have now gone changed to COVID-19. So, you know, uh, all the attention is on one pandemic. So my worry is that malaria is actually surreptitiously, without us knowing it, making a comeback. Uh, and, and we need to refocus on these kinds of issues and not just on COVID-19. Let's say you had a hot tub time machine that would take you back to the beginning of your work. What advice would you give yourself? Oh, be passionate. Mm. Uh, I, in my book, I say there are eight things that you need uh, to be a creative thinker. And the last one is that you must have passion. Mm. It doesn't matter what you do, uh, especially if you work in an NGO. Uh, you're not going to get a lot of salary or whatever. You're not going to be motivated by trying to become a billionaire. You're going to try and make a difference and be passionate really passionate about what you want to do. If you're passionate, you're going to succeed mm. because uh, that is your goal. Um, and it doesn't matter how you define success. I think that you have the ability to create your own life. You have the ability to design the life that you really want to lead. And, uh, and passion is what is going to bring you success, no matter how you define it. What's something you think you or your organization should stop doing? Should stop doing? Well, that's a tough one because uh, <laughs> I, I, I would, if I knew, I would actually stop doing it right now. <laughs> so perhaps uh, I have to do some thinking about that um, because I'd be pretty, pretty arrogant to say I should stop doing something and not do it and not stop doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. It's like you don't know what you know, what you don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and if I did know it, if I should stop doing something, I should actually stop doing it. So. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's also say you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry. What would it do? I would say at the moment, it would be funding. I am mm. worried about funding. I'm worried about uh, uh, not enough creative thinking being applied so that uh, there is funding for NGOs and for others. Uh, I would say that be prepared for failure. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I have a whole chapter in my book on failure. I think failure is very much a part of creative thinking. And you have to embrace failure. You have to uh, be, have an environment that allows you to fail. And if you do fail, you, you have to be able to get up and go uh, after you fail. Um, I think, for example, in COVID-19, I believe that there are over 100 companies uh, trying to get a vaccine right now in various stages of trying to get a vaccine. Well, only one or two will succeed. 99 of them are not going to succeed if there are 100. 
uh, and and research scientists are experts at failure because uh, mm. they know that quite often they're not going to succeed right from the beginning. Uh, I mean, another example I use quite often is baseball players. Mm. Baseball players know that when you go up to bat, if you're in the top 50 best batters of a season, you're still only batting one out of every five times because you're, mm. you're 0.2. Uh, yeah. You know, if, if you're at 0.5, which is one out of two, it means you're like one of the top, you know, 10 batters of the world uh, in baseball. So, so you know, they, they go up there with an expectation that, yeah, I'm going to try for that home run uh, or at least to get a hit. Uh, but the chances, the likely mathematical likelihood of that happening is actually greater than it not happening. So you, you embrace failure. You, you go at it knowing, uh, like a, computer, like a uh, scientist trying to find a vaccine. By the way, we've been trying to find a vaccine on HIV, for example, for 30 years, and we haven't succeeded yet. Uh, you have ARVs, antiretroviral drugs, that keep people alive very well now, but it doesn't prevent somebody from getting uh, HIV. Uh, so it's same with malaria. We've been trying for a vaccine for a long time. There's no vaccine for malaria. We have drugs that suppress malaria, suppress the symptoms uh, after you get it, but there's no drug in the world yet created that actually prevents you completely from getting it. So, mm -hmm. I, and I think that in COVID-19, that might be a result that we have. It's not, you still get it, but you just don't die and you don't get as sick as, as people are right now. So, um, so I think that, that, you know, you have to embrace failure. You have to, no matter what you do, you have to, you have to understand that you might fail uh, and, and be accepting of that and then apply your creative thinking to go on to the next project or the next way of doing things. Definitely. My biggest lessons have come out of my biggest failures. <laughs> so totally agree with you on that one. What's your favorite question to ask an organization or board member? Well, basically, how are you communicating your mission? Mm -hmm. How are you uh, reaching the people that you need to reach? How are you making an impact? Uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of my work actually can't be measured. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's not that I always think that there's a formula to, uh, to apply and, and, you know, there are a lot of people in communications now uh, called communications and development who think that they can measure uh, their impact. I'm not so sure they can. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we, you know, people go through a lot of convoluted ways of trying to say that they measure the impact. I'm not sure. Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. Uh, you know, I mean, rape in the Congo, for example, if you're trying to prevent that, is very, very difficult to understand if you had any impact at all. Uh, you, you can have anecdotes and so on, but it's very difficult to do a baseline study on something like that and then uh, see the impact that your work has. So uh, I, I do think that it comes back to this word passion, that if you believe in yourself, you believe in your NGO, you believe in the work that they're doing, uh, you have passion for it, uh, then go for it. Uh, and, and, you know, you're going to succeed. Uh, maybe not right away and maybe not in this particular job or in this particular NGO, but ultimately you'll succeed. How did you get started in the social impact space? 
Well, I blame Mother Teresa. Mm. Uh, because, you know, I told you when I was eight years old, I used to uh, meet my, I met Mother Teresa several times because my mother was the head of an NGO in Calcutta. And this was in the early 60s before Mother Teresa was very famous. The image of Mother Teresa working in a huge room with the poorest of the poor of Calcutta dying on cots is still etched in my mind as if it were just yesterday. And looking back, what I realized is that I, I discovered at that age the importance of working outside of the comfort of your own comfort zone for the benefit of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can draw a straight line from, from there to all the work that I've been doing on social messaging and social impact uh, ever since. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no doubt that, you know, the poverty I saw in Calcutta in those days and meeting by the trees and so on, and the way I was brought up, I was brought up in a very elite way, but you can't help but notice uh, what is all around you. Uh, and I think that that uh, has had an impact that has carried me all the way through my life. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we all have different experiences and we all have different, different uh, mentors and different uh, pivotal points in our life that change the course of our life. Sometimes we choose them, and sometimes they're just imposed on us. We don't choose them. Uh, and But that certainly was a pivotal moment for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. What's a piece of advice your parents gave that you did or didn't follow? Oh, my father wanted me to be an accountant. <laughs> I actually had to take accounting in the first semester at my university in Pennsylvania called Field mm-hmm. College. Uh, just to satisfy him. And I <laughs> never wanted to be an accountant, and I, I finally just gave it up uh, despite his objections. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to be an accountant. You know, uh, I think we, I think in, the, in those days, uh, parents have a much greater influence on, on us and, and the choices that we made, uh, and more or less imposed their own view uh, on, you know, what a successful person is. I mean, my parents believed that, you know, you become a doctor, lawyer, accountant, engineer, whatever, uh, and those were the professions to be in. I, yeah. I, you know, if my parents were alive today, I would stand up to them and say, and by the way, none of those people changed the world. <laughs> who, who, who are the people who are changing the world now? Just, right. just think, of, think of the creative thinkers that you can think of. Look, even if you think of the largest companies in the world, what is the largest company in the world by market capitalization today? It's Apple. Mm. And Apple started in the garage with two people's creative thinking. That's mm. all. And by the way, they weren't the first to come up with a mobile phone. Another company called Motorola came up with the first mobile phone. And Motorola had a lock on the mobile phone industry until Apple and Samsung and everybody in Nokia came along and took it over from them because you not only have to have creative thinking at the beginning, but you must continuously apply creative thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a good example uh, where if you don't continuously apply creative thinking, you're going to die. And it doesn't matter if you're an NGO or for-profit organization, you're going to die. So it's, a, it's, the, same, um, it's the same kind of thinking. I would, I, I would go to them and say to, uh, to, my, uh, to my parents, uh, I don't know if lawyers and engineers are the people who are leading social change today and making the world a better place. 
Yeah, I definitely have heard my mom say, why don't you just go to medical school? <laughs> yeah. My last question and probably my favorite question is, what advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact space? Go for it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> you know, get passionate, go for it. Uh, right. We need you. I mean, the world needs you. My generation uh, now needs to turn to another generation. Uh, and, and we need you. Uh, and the need has never been greater. The mm -hmm. ability has never been greater to have an impact. Uh, you know, if you, if you think back to the old days when we didn't have the internet and so on, uh, we, we didn't have the ability to reach, as I do, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, mm -hmm. And now you can. Now, you know, we can. Human rights is a good example of how things have changed. Somebody gets shot in some obscure little village in Africa or in Asia or on the streets of New York or whatever, you, you, the whole world can instantly know it because somebody's videotaped it and they can all react to it and they can all see the fairness or not, the human rights abuse that just happened. So human rights is a good example of, of how our thinking has completely changed and the NGOs working in human rights should be taking advantage of the fact. So I tell students, to come back to your previous question, that the world every day is becoming a smaller place. Mm. It's becoming more interconnected. It is becoming more reachable. It is becoming a smaller place. And pretty soon, you'll be able to think of the world as just, you know, everybody is interconnected. Of course, there are some countries, you know, like North Korea, for example, where only the elite can access the internet and so on. But generally speaking, every person on this planet, if the government allows that person to be reached, can be reached. And I saw that, for example, four or five years ago, five years ago in the Ebola prevention work I did in West Africa, because my work is animated and it's short, and so it's, it's easy for mobile phones. And we found millions of people passing in from mobile phone to mobile phone or downloading it from WhatsApp and so on. So uh, it, it's now changed. Uh, you know, we're living in a new era, and I think it's the era of communication. Yeah. Well, thank you. Those are all of the questions that I have. <laughs> thank you for such an insightful conversation. Where can people find you? Uh, go to my website, uh, www.chopmoose, uh, M-O-O-S-E, not the <laughs> dessert, <laughs> chopmoose.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, of course, you can buy the book on Amazon and whatever other site uh, that you wish. Uh, if you buy the book, as I said, through my website, you'll get a personally signed copy from me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you this, uh, this afternoon. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 